take out your message outline and open up your Bibles. I appreciate that. To Genesis 1. How's everybody doing this morning? Good morning again. You ready to start in this series again? We're going to continue on our series beginnings. I'm kind of excited about this series. Hopefully you are too. To get in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. To really kind of understand the meaning of this and, and so how, what this means for us. Imagine you're on your way home today after church, and on your way home, you're, you're going to come to some traffic lights along the way as you go home, and, and you want to impress your family, and you come up to the next traffic light, and, and it's red. And, and you look at it, and you say, let it be green. And it turns green, right? That's the power of words, right? That's the power of words. Not exactly. That's the power of timing. That maybe you've been past that light before, and you know when it's going to turn. Or maybe you saw on the other side that it was yellow, and so you said five, four, three, two, one. Let it be green, and it was. The power of words, right? Imagine you go to the next intersection, and you come up to the next intersection, and there's no traffic light. And you say, let there be a traffic light. Will there be a traffic light? Probably not. Probably not going to be a traffic light. Could you get a traffic light there? Well, you might could if you called the city or the county and said, hey, I went past this intersection, and it's really busy there, and there should be a traffic light there. But what are they going to ask you? What is your name, and who are you to ask for a traffic light, right? It's the power of words. We've got to have power in our words. And, and words are powerful. You know that, right? The words are powerful. As a parent, you can say to your son or daughter that I'm so proud of you, and I'm so glad that God gave you to us, and we're such a, you're such a blessing. Are those words powerful? Are those words powerful to your children? Those words are so powerful that they can shape behaviors and determine attitudes. Words are powerful. And then imagine God. He takes it to the next level as God takes everything to the next level. He takes it to the next level where God says something and it happens. And God says, let there be light. And just like that, there's light. There's light, right? And that's what God, that's the power of words. That's what God does. We want to look at Genesis chapter 1 and the power of words that God's words create worlds. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 through 13, there was a British politician who said this. He said, words are more powerful than an atomic bomb. Words are powerful, and they're hurtful, right? Ten times in Genesis chapter 1, uh, the Bible says of God, and God said that God said something, and then it happened. Ten times. Well, God says, God accomplishes, right? He does that. Where God says, uh, let there be light, and it happens. Where Let there be a traffic light, and God says, it happened, if he says it, right? And God says, let there be a sun, let there be a moon, let there be stars, and it happens. Let that sun be 93 million miles away from the earth, and it's accomplished. Because that's the power of God, because that's the power of his words. God's words are powerful. I want to share with you a couple of passages of Scripture that are outside of the book of Genesis, and I think will help us with this. Because some people say, if we could just eliminate the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, then I could accept the Bible. I'll believe in the Bible. But those first three chapters in the book of Genesis are also emphasized in other parts of Scripture, aren't they? Like the first one is Psalm 33. Psalm 33. If you're fast with your Bibles, go to Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. Psalm 33. Open up your Bible in the middle. It's right about there, right in the middle. Psalm 33. And the psalmist writes this. If you don't want to show you, just listen to me. He writes this, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea in jar, in, into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. That's interesting. Not revere what he created, but to revere the one who created. Stand in awe of him, what it's talking about, right? 
And verse 9 said, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm, is what it says. What tools did God need to recreate this universe, uh, this place that we call home? What did he need? God didn't need any tools. He didn't have any tools. There were no raw materials for God. No raw materials are, are, at all. But that wasn't a problem for God. The Bible says he created. There is a Latin word that is used called ex nihilo, and ex nihilo is basically means out of nothing. God created out of nothing. While we use the word create today, and we create things, people create uh, computer software. They can they create electric vehicles, electric cars, which is amazing. They create those kind of things. We create all kinds of things, but we start with something. We start with some raw material. When God started, he had wrote no raw material. He didn't have anything. God started with nothing. He created out of nothing is what the Bible said. He just said it, and it came to be. That's the power of God. It tells us that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, you might want to write that down. Hebrews 11, verse 3, it says this. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. That he created out of nothing. But it's all by faith is what it's saying to believe that. In other words, none of us were there when God created. Were you there? None of us were there, right? Nobody was there, so nobody could say, I was there, I saw it, we weren't there. So every one of us wants to embrace the view at the beginnings of the universe has to accept it by faith. We all have to accept it by faith because none of us were there. Either starting with the presupposition of humanism, humanism believes that man has the answers to all of man's problems and to all of man's questions, or we come with the presupposition of theism, that God has the answer to all of man's problems, to all of man's questions. Whichever one we believe, everyone believes one of those two, by the way. Either theism or humanism, everyone fits in one of those two categories. And whatever we believe, we have to believe it. And whatever we believe comes by faith. We have to believe it by faith, right? We can say that all this came together when we look at it with our eyes by blind chance, by random chance. We can say that it came together as a result of natural process. Or we can say it was all created and came together by God. But it's all by faith. We have to believe it by faith. Let me read it again. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So by faith, we accept this. So God created, and it happened, and his words are so powerful, right? His words are so powerful. There is one word that was used in the creation story, and it's a word that's been debated now for decades, and it's the word day, day. Would you believe that? Day. The Bible says there was evening, there was morning the first day, there was evening, there was morning the second day, there was evening, there was morning the third day. It is interesting the way that word is used because the day for the Jews later on, it started at sundown or dusk at 6 p.m., and that was their day, evening then morning. But the day for us, when does it start for us? 12 midnight, 12 midnight, right? And that's our day, it runs 24 hours, that's a day for us. The word day is a Hebrew word, yom, Y-O-M. But what was meant by that day? What was meant by that word when we see that in Scripture? Would it surprise you that scholars disagree on what that word means? Would it surprise you? Let me give you a list of some of the names. John Calvin, Louis Burkhar, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, all believed in a six-literal, 24-hour consecutive day of creation, 144 hours of creation, they, they believe. Let me give you some other names. Augustine, Charles Hodges, B.B. Warfield, all took a longer view of creation. 
that God created. Perhaps it took longer than 144 hours for him to create than just those six days. Uh, let me list you some more names and some names you might know and heard, heard of today. R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller, John Piper, D.A. Carson, all the extremely well-known, well-known pastors and teachers and pastors, highly respected today, highly respected, but each of them have a different view how that Hebrew word day is being interpreted in the context based on the greater context of Scripture. Everywhere from the six-hour, 24-hour day, consecutive days, 144 hours of creation, to billions of years, they would say, of creation. Let me give you two names that might be more recognizable to you. They might know. Uh, they're both apologists. One is Ken Ham. You might know him by his videos, by his books. You might know him the, by Noah's Ark in Kentucky or by the Creation Museum. How many of you have been there? Creation Museum in Kentucky. And there was a, not too many of you. I would encourage you to go down there. It like brings the Bible to life. Ken Ham is a very strong proponent of the 144 hours of creation, six literal days, 24-hour days of creation, he believes. Another apologist is Ravi Zacharias. He, has a, he interprets that word, uh, yam, a little different. That, that it, creation might have existed a little bit longer than 144 hours is what he says. Understand that some who take a longer view of creation, do that because they believe God needs more time. None of the people I mentioned believe that. None of them. Uh, God doesn't need us to defend him and say, God couldn't have done it in those six literal 24-hour days, so he needs more time. None of the people I mentioned. The ones that I mentioned have legitimately looked at the text, at the Word of God, and they all, as I mentioned, have a very, very high view of the Bible, of Scripture, believing it's God's Word, it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's uh, without error in the original manuscripts that they believe that Adam and Eve were, were historical figures that sinned against God. Therefore, a redemption plan was necessary. Uh, not only redeem Adam and Eve, but redeem all of mankind. So God sent his son, Jesus, who's the son of God, who's God, into this world to die on the cross for our sins, was buried and raised on the third day. They all believe that. They all agree to that. But they take a different view in regards to the definition of day in Genesis chapter 1. If I can have a slide up here about the different views. There's six different basic views of this. And some of you are really interested in this, and you're, you get excited about these things. And some of you are basically yawning and saying, just move on. What are you doing, right? And, and wherever you are, please sit still. I'm going to go through these very quick. But I think it's important that we know this, that we understand the different views. There are six different views. The first view is the 24-hour solar day view. That's the day referenced in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. It's the same day, literal 24-hour, six consecutive day view, 144 hours of creation. That's the Ken Ham view, that one right there, the first one. Uh, Ken Ham didn't come up with it. Others came up with it way before him. The punctuated activity view, that view takes those days, those 24-hour days, six days. But between those days, they believe there was an indefinite period of time between each and one of, every one of those days. The gap view, and many of you, if you have a Schofield Bible, it's an older view. Schofield reference Bible of 50 or 60 years ago. You will recognize the view is promoted in his notes of the Schofield reference Bible. There was a rebellion that occurred in God's creation between verses 1 and 2. And so there's a long gap between there of ages of time that happened there, they, that he said. So the creative week was basically to recreate uh, what, what God had originally created, distorted by the rebellion. And that's what that view is, and it's promoted by the Schofield Reference Bible. The day-age view, this view is saying that those days basically represent the geological days of our, our ages of our time in our study. That's what that one is. The framework view basically says that 
This was given as a picture uh, so we would understand what a week is. That This is a week. This is God created and created on the first day, the second day, so we can understand that. But it's a framework, basically more logically given to us than chronologically, just so we can understand it. In the last view, the analogical day view, that there are six days of creation, like our days. God had days, and God created on day one was God's creation, day two of God's creation. But the emphasis wasn't necessarily meant that Moses wrote this under inspiration to give us all the details of how long it was and how it all happened. The whole creation story, when you look at it, that comes to the book of Genesis is just 34 verses. Think about that. Of all of God's creation, he gives us 34 verses. That's what he dedicates to it. So what was it meant to give us all the details? And so that's view. It doesn't give us all the details. There could be a longer period of time. Of those six views that you see there, and number one and number six are the most embraced today. But they're embraced by evangelicals. You need to understand it. People who believe in the Bible like we do. I personally prefer the first view. I believe it's a 24-hour solar day view that God created in six literal days, and those days are made up in 24 hours consecutive days, like Ken Ham. I believe that view. But there are other people who view number six. View six. The analogical uh, day view it's not they're trying to give God more time. That's not what they're trying to do. They approach the Bible as honestly as, as I do, with literal, historical, grammatic point of view as I do. They just come up with a different point of view. People who you know and you love and respect, they, they come that. You know, when I was younger, I used to think that uh, I had all the answers. And all the people that agree with me were the one that was, was right, right? But the older I get, the more I realize that I can't speak where God hasn't spoken. And I don't try to, to. You will You will ask me questions sometimes, and I may not give you the answer you want because God doesn't say that. Even though we might want it to, God doesn't say that. So I halt in the things that I say. So I have to give elbow room with respect to some of these areas. And I can't be so dogmatic as I was when I was younger and say there's got to be a little elbow room to this. Uh, there are some people who take an old age view of the earth. I take a much younger view of the earth. I do not think the earth is billions of years old, so you know that. Take a much younger but people who take an older view of the earth and approach the Bible the same way as we do, I'm talking about the ones that approach it the same way that we do, are not necessarily Darwinian evolutionists. They're not necessarily theistic evolutionists where God creates through the laws of nature. They, they don't necessarily believe that. They just have a different point of view of the age of earth and the length of a day, that's all. Let me show you one more chart, and you probably say, man, he's got filled with charts today. But this one will help us understand the days of creation. I think it's really going to help you to understand what is taking place here as you look at this. The book of Genesis was no question with, with structure, written with structure, with design, and with beauty. I mean, Moses wrote it under, under the inspiration of God, so you expect that, right? That it was written with beauty and structure there and symmetry. But notice the days of creation as they align with one another. You see, the, the first three days of creation align with the second three days of creation. That we see that. The first three days of creation, God was forming. The, the second three days of creation, God is filling. And you see the align. You see, the first day of creation, that God created light. But it wasn't until day four, three days later, that he created the sun, the moon, and the stars. The second day of creation, God filled, created the sky and the waters below the ocean. But it wasn't until the fifth day of creation that we created the birds of the sky and the fish of the ocean, the fish of the sea. It was day three that God created the land, the land and all the plants and stuff like that. But it wasn't until day six that he filled the land with animals and, and mankind and gave that plants for food, we see there. 
So the first three days, God was forming. The second three days, God was filling the earth, is what we see. And it goes right hand in hand. We see that. And continuation of the paradigm that we talked about last week is really interesting. We get in verse 3 and following, and we are talking about the first two or three days of, of creation. There is a follows a paradigm where God commands, he commands something, and God said, and then there's a fulfillment of that command, and then God's personal assessment of what he created, where he says, it is good. And finally, God's declaration of the day. He says, there, is, there was evening, there was morning, the first day. And we see that over and over, you find that paradigm that is happening there. But the interesting thing that I really want you to point out, is what God said, it happened. Every time, it happened. And what God created, when God, what God says, it should always happen, right? It always should happen. And, and God continues to speak to us today through his word, amen? He's continued to guide us, just like he did back then in Genesis chapter 1. When you and I opened the Bible, God is speaking to us today. After all that, let us dive into Genesis chapter 1. So if you can open your Bibles to page 1. I get to say that again this week. Page 1 of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And let's find out what the power of God's words can do. And the first three days we're going to look at today. Next week we'll look at the second three days, days four, five, and six. But the first one, number one in your outline, God creates light. He creates light. So let's read verses three through five. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. God used no tools when he created, right? He used no tools. He had nothing. But, but there was no problem for God. God was not struggling during creation. We don't look at him saying, yikes, here comes day two. Boy, this is going to require a lot of energy. Boy, I'm going to have to really stay up late to do this one. We don't see that. It's no problem for God at all, was it? God is a God of infinite power. God is a God of infinite creativity. Think about that. Infinite power. So whatever God says, it's going to happen. You understand that whatever he says, when God speaks, it happens. It happens instantly. Whatever God says is going to happen. And that's what God did. God said, let there be light. And then, not by timing like we do, but by his power, there was light, was what we say. God said, let there be light, and there's light instantly right then. Didn't have to wait. God created it out of nothing. That light we don't have a lot of details of that light because the sun and the moon and the stars didn't come to three days later, right? So God brought some kind of light that separated the light from the darkness from day from, the, from night as we see that. Uh, it, it's interesting that the very beginning of the Bible, it starts with light without reference to the sun, the moon, and the stars. And when you get to the very end of the Bible, you find the very same thing. You find the very same thing. Light is mentioned, but there's no reference to the sun and the moon and stars. They've kind of gone away. And we see that in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, where it says this. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That God is the source of light, and he's the source of light. And that metaphor is used throughout Scripture, uh, where light is often referenced in Scripture for knowledge, for truth, or the right way, right? And, and where darkness is often referred to as deception, following the ways of the world, or, or not getting it. And we use those expressions today in our, in our own lives. We say, well, the light came on, now I understand. Or I saw the light, or we might say, 
He's in the dark, right? We, we use those expressions. He's in the dark. But there's an understanding even from Genesis chapter 1 where it says, where, where God said, let there be light that's reverberated throughout the New Testament. That metaphor has continued to be used where Jesus even says it in John chapter 8, verse 12, where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, will have the light of life, is what he says. So Jesus uses that. We see it in Revelation chapter 21, another uh, chapter in, in Revelation. In verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is the lamp. So the Bible tells us where the light's going to come from. When I read John chapter 1, it says Jesus is the light of the world. It also says he was the light of life. It's fascinating to think of it, though, that in every one of us, when we came into this world, we were spiritually dark. Every one of us was spiritually dark. You know that? We were spiritually dark. And perhaps some of us tried to mask that darkness with, the, with their little flashlight or, or a candlelight of, of good deeds, but we couldn't pierce the darkness. We couldn't take it away. Certainly, we couldn't take the darkness away. But then God, who had a plan from the beginning of time, the Bible said, spoke light into each one of our lives. By the Holy Spirit, it took the word of God to enlighten us that in a second, through faith in Jesus Christ, the darkness was gone, right? That the light came into our life, and now the light is gone through Jesus. And the Bible tells us that we are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light just by accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior. In just a moment, just in an instant, that all happens. That's what God does. God brings light. And everywhere that God goes, he shines his light because God is a God of light. That's the metaphor is used over and over about God. Not only in Genesis, but in the book of Revelation. We're going to see God is the source of light. If you're still in the darkness this morning, and you're here today, and you're like in the darkness, maybe God has you here this morning because this is the day the darkness goes away. This is the day you say, I'm tired of walking in the darkness. And this is the day that finally you come into the light and you understand that God loves you. And you understand who Jesus is, that he's the son of God, he's God. And that he died on the cross for your sins, was buried and raised on the third day. And everyone who comes and accepts Jesus by faith comes into the light. And this morning you're ready to come into the light and leave the darkness behind. The light is Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, come into the light and accept him by faith, by putting your faith and trust in him, and leave that darkness behind. And that's what Jesus was talking about. He's the light of the world. He's the light of life. He gives light wherever he goes. Notice as well as stating in verse 6, I mean starting in verse 6, the second day, that God creates order. He creates order. Verses 6 through 8. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, there was morning, and the second day. I didn't have time this morning to read you Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. In those uh, verses, it fills in the gaps of some of the details about creation. It helps us understand a little about. We know that there was, God was there. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that. In the beginning, God, we know he was there. Uh, but we also know that the Holy Spirit was there. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says the Holy Spirit was hovering over the, the, the surface of the deep. When we get the Colossians in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus was there. They had created all things, and all things are created by him, and he sustains all things. So we see here the whole Trinity was there at the time of creation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you, yet when this is read, and centuries later, after Moses wrote this, 
to the children of Israel as God's preparing them to go into the promised land. And that land is filled with all those Canaanite gods. And they're reading this and they're listening to this. There is no mention or reference to the God of darkness. There's no reference or mention of the goddess of fertility. There's no mention of the goddess of death or life or the sky or the sun. There's no mention at all. All that we find there that at the beginning is God. That's all that's mentioned. No one else is mentioned because that's all the one that matters, right? In the beginning, God. This is a reference to the greatness and powerful creator. That's what that's referenced. That no one is in his category. No one stands up against him. He's in a category all by himself. In the beginning, God. Those other ones are just false gods. They're false gods. There's only one God. In the beginning, God. He stands alone is what it's letting us know. He stands alone. So God brings order out of chaos, and he holds everything together. When I look at that chart that we had up on the screen before, and God forms, and then he fills, and he does those great things, and, and he takes that which is chaotic, and he fills it up, gives it purpose, gives it life, gives it meaning, and he gives you and I a place to live, because that's what he's doing when he's forming. He's giving you and I a place to live. When I read that, I think, is, is God still the same as he was way back there in Genesis chapter 1? Has he changed? Is God still the same? Has he changed? No, not at all. He's just as powerful, right? So maybe you're here today, and you say to yourself, man, I thought my family wouldn't be like this. My family is so chaotic. Everything's just seemed out of whack right now in my, my family's life. I have one child going this direction. I have another child going in that direction. I have one child that hasn't spoken to me for, for maybe years. We never envisioned like this. We never thought our family would be like this. We never thought this would happen. We did everything we thought was right. We prayed. We went to church. We did all the right things. But it hasn't turned out that way. Let me share with you the God who spoke order into chaos, the one who did that, he could do that for your family, too. He's able to do that. If he could do that to this huge universe, to this huge earth, he can do that to you. And maybe you're saying, I, I never thought that my life would be in this stage of my life right now. When I was younger, I had it all planned out as a young man or a young woman. I thought when I'm in my 30s, I'm going to do this. When I'm in my 40s, I'm going to do this. When I'm in my 50s, I'm going to do this. I had it all planned out. But now I'm later on and look back, what happened to my 30s? What happened to my 40s? You look back and say, my life is so chaotic. It makes no sense. There's no meaning. Listen to me. The God who spoke order into our universe and brought order out of chaos, he can hover over your life and bring it purpose and meaning. And he can bring uh, order out of chaos in your life too. He can do that for you. And maybe you're here this morning and says, they, they, you think of, I got sin in my life. And I got things in my life that I cannot get out of my life. But the God who separated, the Bible says, who separated the, the uh, waters from the earth and the waters from above and called that sky in this ocean is the same God who can separate you from the sins that you can't separate yourself from. God can do what you cannot do. He, he's a God of order. He can help you wherever you are in your life. The God who brought order out of chaos to this world but it was empty and void in darkness over the surface of the deep. And he's going to bring now uh, an order to it. Is the same God with the same power. He can do that in our lives too. And he's demonstrating his power to us. To help us understand, I can help you in your life. Your life is not as big as the universe, but I can help you with all the little details. But you've got to give them to him. You've got to surrender it to him. You've got to bring your life and your problems and all those things to him. You've got to bring your family to him. Say, God, I've tried it my way. It doesn't work. I need help. And the God who brings order out of chaos can do the same thing for your family. Can bring purpose and life and meaning and hope. He does that all the time. And he wants to do it in your family, but we have to surrender to him. Amen? 
The third day, I, I love this one, and it's very uh, kind of touching that God creates home. That's what he does. He creates home. He creates home for us. In verses 9 through 13, And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and the, and, and the gathered the waters, he, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to the various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And centuries later, we eat of those trees, those apples, those oranges, those pears, those peaches. We all say, it is good, right? It's all good when you eat fruit. You think, wow, it is good. And God created that way back then. And we say, it is good. And God created a home for us. That's what he was doing. He's creating a home. In his creation, we see he's forming and he's filling so that it's livable for you and I. And God says, I've made you a place to live. I want you to live here. And that's what God is doing this. Do you not realize this? These first three days, God is forming this earth for you and I to live upon. He's doing all this for you and I because he's going to create us. That's not going to come to day six. He's doing it. And if you look at creation as a foolish person, and I say that, if you look at creation and you look at all that God has created and you worship the creation instead of the one who created it, it's like looking at uh, a Frank Lloyd Wright home. I don't know if you've ever seen a Frank Lloyd Wright home. When you go into Frank Lloyd Wright home, you just know by the architecture that it's a Frank Lloyd Wright home. And by the lines, by the way you look at it, you just know it's different. To, to attribute that to someone else is crazy. When we look at this earth and we look at the, uh, look at the universe, the complexity of it, I don't know if you ever, I think about this a lot, the complexity of it, that all it takes to sustain life here on this earth and, and, and all the details that God has, how far the sun is and how our earth is on the 23 and I think one-third degree uh, on its axis turned there. So everything, our, our, the, the temperatures in any one place of earth doesn't change usually around 100 degrees throughout the seasons. Do you realize that? The consistency of 93 million miles away is the earth, but the air that we have, the hydrogen, all the things that we have is just right, just right for, for life here on this earth. And if anything was to change incrementally, any to the smallest of details, life would cease to exist, right? It's amazing. It's amazing. And to attribute this and say, oh, this just happened by chance, are we crazy? We have to look at this and say, there's, there's a designer, and the designer is God. There, there's God created all this. We have to be amazed by it, right? Amen? We have to understand when we're really looking at it honestly with an open heart to say, this couldn't have came by random chance. Just look at your own body. This couldn't have just came by random chance. But what we're seeing, and what I want you to know, is what we're enjoying is a world and universe that has been affected by the fall. It's all been affected by the fall. We have thistles. We have thorns. We have uh, weeds to pull out. Just ask farmers or tell you about that. Anybody takes care of their grass or, or as a uh, garden or anything like that. Uh, but it's all the result of the fall. When we're pulling those weeds out, we see that. And can you imagine one day the home that we enjoy here is going to be renovated by our God. The same one who designed it is going to renovate it. The Bible says that one day he's going to renovate it with refurbishing fires according to Second Peter. And he's going to give us a new home. And that new home is going to be perfect. It's going to be perfect. And all those that know Jesus Christ will be there. Where Jesus says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back for you so that you might be where I am. And there will be a new heavens and there a new earth is what the Bible says. And everything that is talked about in Isaiah chapter 11, chapter 35, and chapter 65, about the new heavens and the new earth, all those kind of things, without any of the effects of the fall, are going to be there. And we're going to be living in those new homes, and you and I are going to look out and say, Wow, what a designer. God, you are amazing. You've outdone yourself for what you've done here. We're going to be amazed at what he's done. What was 1968? It was in Christmas Eve. Some of you might remember it. Some of you may not have been alive back then, but you probably read about it. It was Apollo 8 had just finished its mission. And it was going through the dark side of the moon. And I want you to listen to what those astronauts had to say when they saw it for the first time, the Earth. It's uh, now approaching uh, lunar sunrise. And uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8, have a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. As they were coming around the moon, and they began to see that blue and white globe, as the sun was shining so beautifully upon it at that time, the first thing that came to their mind was not Galileo, was not some scientist. The first thing that came into their mind was Genesis chapter 1, and God said, and they began to recite those first 10 verses of Genesis chapter 1, 1 is what they did. And just imagine the amazing of seeing that, the sun. Just imagine us seeing the earth and, and how, uh, how you and I picture this, that God created it all. So what do we do with all this, that we have this, that we learned this this morning? What do we do? Is this just tucked away so we get in an argument, a debate with somebody that we might use this? Partially. But what I want you to even further, even more than that, is, is the power of God's words. Do you see what he created? Do you understand what he created, this earth, how big it is? Do you understand the sun, how big it is that he created it? Do you understand the stars he created, all them, how big they are, and how massive, and there's billions and billions that God created all that? And he didn't struggle. He just said, let there be stars in the sky. And the Bible says he has them all numbered. I mean, he has them all named. He knows them. He knows them all. God knows all those things. But, but, but I, so I want you to understand that what God says it happens. It happens, and I want us to understand it. And God get, continues to speak to us in my life through the Word, right? And when he speaks through his Word, I have to respond, right? And, and so when I read something uh, that God speaks to me about in the Bible, I don't have to pray about it to see if I'm going to do it or not because God has already spoken. I'm just to obey it. See, when God is speaking to me in my life experience, I don't have to walk away and say, let me pray about that, God, see if I want to do it. Why would I have to pray about it? God has spoken. Aren't we supposed to respond when God speaks? Well, God is speaking to us when he tells us, Doug, I want you to stop doing this, or I want you to do this. We don't have to pray about it. Should I do this? Because many times when we start praying like that, we compromise God's word. Let's just do what it says and not do what he tells us not to do, right? That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to obey his word, not debate it. I don't have to pray about it. Yes, God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey you. That's what he gives us his word, the written word. Secondly, God created light so you and I wouldn't have to walk in darkness anymore. 
And if you were here today and you're still in darkness and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have questions that need to be answered, please come up after the service. I'd love to talk to you. Let's get your questions answered so you can understand who Jesus is, that he's the Son of God, that he's God, and what he did, that he died on the cross for your sins, and put your faith and trust in Jesus. Come into the light and leave the darkness behind. And it all comes by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Accept him today as your Savior. Do that. For all of us uh, who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, sometimes we go through difficult times in our life. We go through some difficult circumstances. So maybe you're in one of those right now. And you say, man, I'm going through some difficulty right now. The God who brought order out of chaos in this huge world is the same God who can bring order out of your chaos in your life right now. But you have to give him your life. You have to give him your circumstance. Surrender it to him today. Let him bring order out of the chaos in your life. Let him bring a purpose and meaning and hope in a situation where you say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to handle this. God knows what to do with that. He understands it. If he can solve the universe and bring order out of chaos in the universe, he can definitely do it in our lives. Amen? You all agree? Amen. He can do it in my life, and he can do it in your life. And he wants to. That's the, that's the thing. He wants to. But he's not going to do it many times till we and I surrender it and say, God, I need your help. And that's so what prayer is about. We're surrendering it to God, giving it to God. We throw up our hands and say, God, I need your help. So let's do that. Let's surrender it to God and let's give it to him. And watch what God can do, only what God can do in our lives as we surrender our problems and our lives to him. And he takes that chaos and he brings order to it. He brings purpose, meaning, and life and hope into it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. Because God, you are a God of order. You're a God of peace. You're a God of, of light, that metaphor that brings light, Lord. We all want light in our lives. We're drawn to the light. Wherever darkness is, where we see light, our eyes just fixate on that light. And we run toward the light. And the metaphor, God, you are the light of the world. You're the light of life. That every one of us, we'd fixate it upon Jesus. We'd run towards you and everything in our lives. Lord, you have power that our minds cannot grasp. A power of creation. When we look at creation, Lord, we look at the world, we look at everything in it, it's so complex, it's, it overwhelms us, and, and our minds kind of shut off, they shut down when we try to think so deep. But Lord, I ask that you would help our minds to expand. Expand and go to places that we've never gone before. That we'd fix our minds upon God, upon you. Because there's nothing greater than you. When we think of the things of God, our minds expand to places that they've never expanded before. Our minds become smarter and, and broader and, and all those kind of things because there's nothing greater than you. And so, Lord, let us be amazed about your wonder. Let us be amazed about your creation. Let us be amazed about the things that you did in Genesis chapter 1. But, Lord, let us also be amazed at the things you're doing in our lives now. That we look up creation and we see the, the stars, the sun, the moon, the earth that we live on. We see other people. God, you created all this. And if you created all this and you can bring uh, order out of chaos of those things, you can do that in my life. So whatever I have in my life, if I surrender to you, you promise to help me, to give it purpose and meaning. And I, I pray that for each person here today, that they find purpose and meaning in their life through God. He promises to give us that. If we surrender to him, sincerely come to him. I pray for that person who may not know Jesus as their Savior, of not coming to the light. I pray for their soul this morning. They would understand they're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, and they're separated from God. And they put their faith and trust in Jesus today. I pray for their soul. I pray for every one of us, Lord, that we would be in awe of your creation, 
that, Lord, we would not be caught up in worshiping what you created, but the one who created. As we look at the stars, it reminds us of you. As we look at the sun, S-U-N, it reminds us of you. As we look at the moon, it reminds us of you. As we look at the earth, it reminds us of you. As we look at people, it reminds us of you because everyone that we see, every person who's created in your image is to remind us of you. That our minds are constantly drawn back to you and your greatness and who you are in all of your glory because there is no one higher than you. And you deserve all the glory, the honor, and the praise. Let our minds be filled with wonder and amazement and overwhelmed with you, God. Because, God, you're such beautiful and wonderful and amazing. Glory to the highest to you in everything, Lord. We love you and praise you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.